Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to begin, uh, continue our study of Hebrews, beginning, we're going to read the first uh, verse of chapter 1 all the way down through chapter 2, verse 4 today, because we want to get the whole argument of what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience and to us today. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name as he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit and distributed according to his will. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word and write its truth upon our hearts today. Well, most everyone these days has a a cell phone or a mobile phone, uh, if you will, and uh, and I doubt that there is anyone here who can give us a technical explanation of how the cell phone works. I mean, surely the basics, but a real technical uh, explanation is probably beyond most of us. Well, suppose we were to get some telephone experts to come here and explain to us how the cell phone works. Our first speaker is Alexander Graham Bell. And, of course, Alexander Graham Bell was the inventor of the telephone uh, back in 1876. He 
should know something about the telephone since he has the first patented uh, patent on the telephone. That's our first speaker. Our next speaker is a scientist from Apple, uh, the inventors of the iPhone. Now, in the iPhone, I read that there are over 200 different patents that were part of the design for the iPhone, and a whole team of scientists put it together, and engineers put it together. So, so there's a lot of explaining to do to explain how the cell phone works. Now, between those two, Alexander Graham Bell and a scientist from Apple, who do you think would be uh, the one to give you the most accurate and helpful explanation of the cell phone? I think obviously it would be the scientist from Apple. Uh, I think Alexander Graham Bell's technology would be a little far behind. He was a brilliant man, made many other inventions as well, but the cell phone would probably be beyond his experience. My fourth great uncle, uh, his name was John McCormick Bayless, was a surgeon in the Civil War, and he treated soldiers from both sides during the Battle of Vicksburg, uh, both north and south. However, if I needed brain surgery, I don't think I would want him to do it if I could have someone like Dr. Ben Carson, who is a specialist in neurosurgery. Dr. Bayless, my relative, his uh, instrument bag is down at LSU's medical center on display. And I'm sure it's got some saws and things in there that are pretty gruesome. And I don't want anybody cutting me with that thing. I want an expert. I want someone with uh, more know-how, more uh, experience, more up-to-date information to work on me. Well, the writer of Hebrews is concerned about similar things. He's, he's obviously uh, interested in angels here specifically demonstrating that Jesus is greater than angels. Why? Why is he making this point that Jesus is greater than angels? Because the original audience was not tempted to worship angels. That was not what was going on here and why the writer of Hebrews was addressing them. What they were tempted to do was to drift away from the gospel from the good news about Jesus, and they were heading back to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. So these were Jewish believers, people who were uh, at one time Jews or Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, but then they were introduced to Christianity and they had embraced Christ and the message, the gospel. And it was very difficult for them to live as Christians in the first century. They were under persecution. Christianity was not a, a sanctioned religion of Rome. Judaism was. And I'm sure uh, the, the people who were talking to them, the voices they were hearing were saying, come back to Judaism. It's not so difficult. You can get work. You could get a job. You could be accepted back in and you, you're familiar with it, and it would be much easier for you to do so. And, of course, they're tempted to because their lives are very difficult. So that's their temptation. And the reason that the writer of Hebrews is talking about angels so much is that in several places in the Bible, 
uh, it states that the law, the Mosaic law, was given by God to Moses through angels. I'll give you three examples. In Galatians 3, Paul makes the point that the law, verse 19, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. He makes that point. And then Stephen, as he's preaching right before they stone him, speaking of Moses, he says, Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So it's through angels that spoke to him. And Stephen goes on and says that uh, to the people who he's talking to, you received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. And that made him mad, and so they threw rocks at him until he was dead. So these people were tempted to return to Judaism and the law. And the writer is saying that the message of Judaism, with its glorious law which was given through angels, is not as glorious as the gospel which is given through the Son of God. Alexander Graham Bell was brilliant, but he's not going to be able to give you the latest information on today's phones. The message from a scientist from Apple would be more helpful. Uh, a 19th century surgeon is not going to know as much as a 21st century surgeon with all the new medical techniques and up-to-date information. The Old Testament law is not an improvement on what Jesus did. Angels are just messengers. They are just ministers. But Jesus is the Son of God. And that's the point. He uses seven Old Testament quotations to prove his point in chapter 1. He's just sending out one thing after another to show the superiority of the messenger. You think about it this way. If you go to your mailbox and you receive two pieces of mail there, you see two letters. One is from the Bank of America and it's some credit card offer. The other looks to be a handwritten note from the Queen of England. Which one are you going to open first? Are you going to bother to open the credit card? Why not just tear them up and throw them away? But hey, the letter from such an esteemed individual, you want to hear what she has to say. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews is making. Look, angels are great, but they're not the Son of God. Let's look at just some of the things that he says. Uh, you see there, his name is more glorious. Verse 4, uh, his name is more excellent than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So the angels are, are merely servants. They're, they're merely messengers. But Jesus is the Son of God. And he makes that point even clearer in verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. His office is greater than the angels. Uh, in verse 6, it says there that uh, when Jesus was born in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So the angels worship Jesus. 
And then of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And he goes on and talks about the greatness of his kingdom and his dominion. And he goes on in, chapter, in, uh, in verse 10 about how Jesus is the agent of creation. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. He's never said to the angels, verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So you say he's just completely showing the, the distance between Jesus and the angels. The angels are created beings who serve uh, us and who serve God. So the message coming from the king is more important and relevant than the message coming from a servant, just a messenger. That's where the, these uh, Hebrew Christians were. They were going to go back to the old message, which is not anything compared to the, to the message of Christ, the good news of salvation. Now, what does this have to do with us? Because I doubt anybody here is sitting there thinking, okay, you know, I'm really thinking that the Old Testament looks superior to Christianity. Not a lot of us are thinking about going back to Old Testament sacrifices and, and embracing Judaism again like these people were. But like them, we are tempted to drift away from the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And where do we drift? We always drift to the law because that's the default mode of the human heart. We, we, if we drift away from Christ... What we're saying is, we don't need Jesus. And what is Jesus? He's the Savior. And in verse 4, it says, When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Almighty. That was his work. He, he paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And he sat down because his work was finished, completed. So when we push Jesus away, what we're saying is we don't need purification for sins. We don't need someone to save us. We can do it on our own. We can, you know, we can hope that at the end of our lives that our goods outweigh our bads because that's, that's, how we will, that's what we will fall into. Nobody in the history of the world, no religious leader that exists today or ever has promised to save you from your sins. No one is promising to, to be the one who provides purification for sins. Buddha didn't promise that. Muhammad didn't promise that. Confucius didn't promise that. No one said that that was what they would provide. What they would tell you to do was follow this path, follow these rules, do these things, and then... You will achieve eternal life, nirvana, paradise, whatever the desired end might be. Jesus is the only one who provides purifications of sin, who says, look, you can't do it. You're lost in your sins, but I have come. God himself comes to earth to provide purification for sins. So see, what we are drifting away from when we drift from Christ, is we're saying, I don't need a Savior. And when you say that, what you're hoping is that at the end, 
your good will outweigh your bad and that somehow God will accept that. But that's not, that's, that's very bad thinking because you are, we are all sinners and we need salvation. And our goods will never be enough because God demands perfection, absolute 100% perfection. And we cannot provide that. We are sinners because we sin. We're sinners because it's in our hearts to sin. We have sin there, and it's springing out all over the place. Even when we don't realize it, we sin. So when we're drifting away, we're drifting to this attitude that, you know, a culturally comfortable attitude. The world around us has a message that it's trying to convince us of. It's, it's saying things against the gospel and these voices are constantly bombarding us. It's not that we need a Savior. You know, the world is, is saying we don't need a Savior because that would mean I would have to admit that I'm a sinner, that I'm helpless to save myself. That's very un-American. You know, we can, we can save ourselves. We can do, uh, we, can, we can make it happen with the right techniques. We push the right buttons. We can do it. We have this can-do attitude as Americans, but that's not what the Bible tells us. We're dead in sins and trespasses, and we need Jesus to bring us to life through his sacrifice. And the world will also not want to hear that we will one day face a judge. That's not the message that, that is comfortable that the world is promoting, because that would imply that there is a standard by which we can be judged and and the world today doesn't want to accept that there is absolute truth. We can't have absolute truth because then we will be able to judge one another. And no one wants to be judged because we want to do what we want to do. Everybody's looking inward for that standard of how they behave. And you don't judge me, I don't judge you. And God forbid that God would judge us. See, that message is not popular today. And people don't want to have that because they don't want Jesus. And if there is Jesus and he is who he said he is, then there's going to be a judgment because there is a standard of right and wrong. So how do we keep from drifting away from that? I mean, we can, we can sit here and analyze the culture uh, all day long and think through and there's all kinds of iterations of how this anti-Christ attitude is coming at us. But the best thing to do is do exactly what the writer of Hebrews is telling his people to do. Listen, the message that you have received from Christ, Christ himself, look at him. Look at him. He says, we must pay, verse 1 of chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We don't have to go out looking at all the problems out there. We just have to keep remembering the message that Christ tells us. We're sinners in need of his salvation. He goes on, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now he's just spent the, the whole time telling us that Jesus' message is greater than the angel's message because the messenger himself is much greater. 
But this message from the angels, if you disregarded that, then there's going to be retribution. How much more if you neglect Christ and the salvation that he has provided? If the message of angels is ignored, pushed to the side, and there's going to be retribution for that and judgment for that, how much more if we neglect the fact that Christ came and he's not even asking us to do anything, he's doing it for us. He's providing salvation for us. All we have to do is put our trust in him, put our lives in his hands, run to him with our sins and, and seek, to, uh, seek, his, his repent, seek repentance, to turn from our sin and turn to him. And see, it's not something that we just think or feel in our hearts. No. It was declared at first by the Lord himself, and then it was attested by those who heard the apostles and others who surrounded Christ, and they continued to preach after Christ ascended to heaven. And, and while they were doing that preaching, God was putting his stamp of approval on that message with signs and wonders and other miracles and also by gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives to the church. You know, there's this outside evidence that the writer of Hebrews is pointing them to. See, it's not something that we just have to look inside ourselves and find the truth within. No. There are people who were there and they've been proclaiming it and that message has gone through the ages, 2,000 years. Pay attention to it. Listen to it. That's what the writer is saying to them. What he's saying to us. Listen to the gospel. Remember Christ. Remember who he is and what he's done. And don't drift away from it. You know, drifting, it's kind of like going downstream. You know, sometimes when we go to North Carolina, we will tube down the river. You know, you don't, you don't go very fast in a tube. You go as fast as the river's going. It's kind of nice, leisurely, but you're just drifting Drifting down till the end. And that's the picture that we're, is painted here. We can so easily just drift away from the gospel and, and right into counterfeit gospels. So we must be aware and pay attention to the gospel that says that we are sinners and Christ died for sinners. As we come to the table today, that's what we're remembering. Christ's body was given for us. You know, Christ broke the bread and distributed it and said, this is my body. And it's a picture of Christ giving himself for sinners. The blood that was shed, the cup, he pours the cup and gives it to the disciples. It reminds us that the blood was shed, that Christ's blood was shed so our sins can be forgiven. He's made purification for sins. This is a picture of the gospel, the good news of Christ, uh, the table is, so that we won't drift away from it. And that's why it's important to participate in the Lord's table. And if we think about it, in conclusion, the angels are always pointing to Jesus. You remember when he was born, uh, when Jesus was born and laid in the manger, and the angels went to the shepherd, and they said, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, for unto you is born in this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in the Old Testament, where you see the description of the Ark of the Covenant, 
There's angelic beings on the mercy seat where the, the blood was, uh, was, of the sacrifices was put. And the mercy seat is there where the, the cherubim are, uh, have their, uh, it says here, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. So the faces of these angelic beings are focused in on the place where the atonement was put, the blood of the atonement was put. So again, pointing to what was to come, to Christ, the Savior, the one who was to shed his blood for us. So the message of angels really is the message pointing us to Christ. And I just want us to be reminded of that wonderful message today, in word, in the table, and may the Lord hold us from drifting from it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us not drift from the gospel. But we pray, Lord, that we would truly embrace it in our hearts and humble ourselves and know the redemption that you have provided through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.